0: And let's start with the basic anatomy of the urinary system. The components of the urinary system are seen in the picture. Its structure is very simple, it's just three or four things, as we see here kidneys, ureters, urinary bladder, and urethra. And they are located, most of them, in the retroperitoneal space, abdominal cavity but behind the peritoneum, and connected to the circulation by blood vessels, an artery, and a vein, which are called the renal vein and the renal artery. So in the lecture, we're going to take every single component and analyze it and study it, what are the parts of this uh, structures are and what is the function of each of these. And in the lab later, is also about urinary system. We're gonna see models. We're gonna see uh, sheep kidney. We're gonna dissect it and cut it in different sections and perform urinalysis, the analysis of the urine. First, let's start naming the functions of the kidneys. Kidneys are filters. Filters that are very, very complex. Um, As a matter of fact, the hemodialysis machines are devices that help patients that have kidney failure, which means that the kidneys are not working. And the main function of the kidney is to filtrate to filtrate (laughs) products and wastes from the metabolism, things that can become toxic. They're supposed to be excreted in the urine, and the people that have the kidneys not working, these wastes will remain in the blood for longer, producing toxicity. And the machines, the hemodialysis machines, those devices, are actually filters. They contain a series of filters that resemble the function of the kidney. Although it's not perfect as the kidney, but it helps and it mostly performs all the functions. And it's based all in the functions that we know that the kidney has. So a kidney works for filtration of the wastes and regulation, and in that way it regulates the composition of chemicals in the blood, and one of the chemicals that are very important to maintain balance in the blood are the electrolytes, sodium, potassium, chloride. Hydrogens, the carbonate ions, and this has to do with the pH. Regulation of the pH is performed by the kidney. The blood volume, the amount of water that are eliminated will determine how much fluid we have in our body and how much fluid uh, there is in the blood. And therefore, the blood volume is in relation with the blood pressure. It's a principle principle that we studied in cardiovascular. So, kidneys are involved, therefore, in the regulation of blood pressure. Again, people with chronic uh, renal problems or kidney failure, they usually have problems with the blood pressure blood pressure. So in that way, we see that the osmolarity, osmolarity of the blood is maintained. If you remember the concept of osmolarity, it has to do with the number of solutes in general. Solutes, meaning molecules that are present in the blood. When that changes, then the kidney will change the amount of water that is maintained or excreted. No more batteries. Another function of the kidney is production of hormones. One of them was mentioned in another part, and we call them EPO. That stands for erythropoietin, which is important for production of red blood cells. Calcitriol is vitamin D, which is produced by the kidneys. Glucose levels are also regulated by the kidneys. And what we said at the beginning, an excretion of metabolic wastes and different types of foreign substances like drugs or toxins that we can uh, consume. Most of the drugs that we take, meaning by drugs, medications of all types, they are metabolized in the liver and all the products of the metabolism will be excreted by the kidney and the urine. And we can measure, usually in the urine, we will find the products of the metabolites or metabolize of different medications and drugs. So I'll go into the anatomy. Kidneys are two organs that are located in the retroperitoneal space, as described here, between the peritoneum and the posterior wall of the abdomen. In the retroperitoneal space, they have the shape of a beam. And they are protected partially by two pair of ribs, the floating ribs, which are the ribs 11 and 12. And regarding the position, the right kidney is slightly lower than the left because the presence of the liver. The liver is a very large organ located in the right hypochondriac region. And how the kidneys are, right kidneys lower than the left, that is explained by the development in embryology. When these structures are developing, I'm talking about the embryo, uh, embryonic period, eight weeks, 10 weeks of development, the kidneys are actually developing in the pelvis. And from there, they will go up and ascend to the final position in the abdomen. But since the liver is developing in the right side, the liver, the, the kidneys, especially the right kidney, cannot go higher. It will stop. Instead, the left kidney goes a little bit higher than the, than the right kidney. That view is a posterior view, where you see the right kidney is a little bit lower than the left kidney. From the kidney, we have the ureter, which is the the one that carries the filtrate and therefore the urine. It's about 25 centimeters long from the beginning to the connection to the urinary bladder. And it starts from an indented area in the kidney called the hilum. And it goes and connects to the urinary bladder. Together with the ureter, we'll find the renal blood vessels, meaning the artery and vein, renal vein and renal artery. And then the ureters connect to the urinary bladder, which is a pelvic <coughs> organ, which is in the pelvic cavity. And from there, the urethra will allow the urine to be excreted to the outside. Going more to the details about the kidney. We say that indented area is called the hilum. And the hilum contains renal artery, renal vein, the ureter, and nerves and lymphatic blood vessels. Nerves and lymphatic blood vessels. Now, around the kidney, since the kidneys are in the retroperitoneal space, behind the peritoneum of the abdominal cavity, the kidneys are actually closer to the back. And most of the surgeries for kidney, the best approach is not through the abdominal cavity. The best approach is through an incision that is made in the back and in the side of the body where they start dissecting the muscles from there, and before reaching the abdominal cavity, they will find the kidneys. The kidneys are not in the abdominal cavity, they are behind the peritoneum. And in that position, the kidneys are protected, surrounded by connective tissue. And this connective tissue from superficial to deep layers are called the renal fascia first, then an adipose capsule, this fat tissue around the kidney, and the renal capsule, which covers the organ and continues with the ureter. So all these layers of connective tissue are protecting the kidney, providing a cushion because it's in between the muscles. aligned with the 11th and 12th ribs. In the transverse section that we see here, you can see this. This is a transverse section where we can see the different layers that we mentioned. The renal fascia, adipose capsule, and the renal capsule. Renal capsule is covering the kidney. Later in the dissection, we probably will be able to see the renal capsule, these uh, Kidneys, some of them, they still have the capsule. So you cut it and you will find a fine membrane uh, surrounding the whole organ. That is a capsule. Outside that capsule, we find the fat tissue. And even outside the adipose tissue, are renal fascia that connects to other organs. Because here in this diagram, see the kidney surrounded by fat tissue. All surrounded by fat tissue, all that yellow part and the ribs are shown here. This one and this one. Since it's a transverse section, that will be the right kidney because next to the liver. That position will be um, sometimes a problem because any trauma or accident that involves trauma to this area may break the ribs, and the ribs, one piece of rib may injure the kidney. And um, actually, those cases are seen. Kidney rupture, kidney trauma, um, because of the position in that part. Not well protected by just the adipose tissue. So inside the kidney, inside the kidney, we distinguish some regions, especially when we make a longitudinal section to see the inside. This is what we're gonna see in the lab later with the models and cutting the uh, sheep kidney. There are two regions, the renal cortex and the renal medulla. Cortex is the outer layer and the medulla, the inner region. Now in the medulla, we will find these areas called renal pyramids and renal columns. like we see here, the cortex is that clear region that is outermost, all this clear area. The medulla, the medulla is the innermost region from that line to these yellow structures which are part of the collecting system. Now, if you see the medulla, you can distinguish Two structures, one of them is called renal pyramid, which has the shape of a triangle here. And since this is a, just a section, it's a two plane, 2D, but in reality is a pyramid. We are making a section of the pyramid. And in between the pyramids, there is a white or paler area called the renal column, which are like anchorage for The cortex and the medulla in the in this part of the kidney so that's one of the things that we're going to see in the lab later distinguish these regions the cortex the medulla the pyramids the columns and everything in yellow here is part of what we call the collecting system because these are ducts that will collect all the filtrate all this filtrate fluid that will turn into urine So more of the uh, internal anatomy, and especially for the collecting system or drainage system. In yellow, we see in the cortex this little tubule that is labeled as nephron. We'll see later that the nephron is a unit, is the anatomical unit and functional unit. It's like a microfilter. There are millions of nephrons in every kidney. Well, those nephrons will drain the filtrate that will turn into urine to the collecting system. And that collecting system starts with a cup-like structure called minor calyx. And the word calyx means actually cup. It's like a little cup that collects all that. Here we see a longitudinal section, but actually it's like a little cup. That's a minor calyx. Now when two or more minor calyces get together, they will drain into a bigger uh, uh, collecting area which is called a major calyx. So this minor calyx and this minor calyx and this minor calyx will drain to a major calyx. And then all the major calyces, will drain into a bigger area, central area, called the renal pelvis, which will continue. if We follow the direction of this. The urine comes in this direction, and we'll get into the ureter, and it will keep traveling to the urinary bladder. From an anterior view, and this is an anterior view of the right kidney, the blood vessels in the pelvis are oriented in this way. Most anterior, you find the vein, the renal vein, then you find the artery, and most posterior, the renal pelvis. From anterior to posterior, the renal vein, renal artery, and renal pelvis. You're going to see that also in the dissection of the sheep kidney. Yeah. So technically, it starts with math nephron, in the technically. It's a and yes. The nephron is fed by a blood vessel, a capillary blood vessel. And that's where it filters the blood at that point. And the nephron, all these little tubules and collecting ducts will bring in the filtrate. At that point, it's called filtrate, because it has to be processed. And when it gets to the renal pelvis, it is urine. Here we see a dissection of the kidney uh, where the tissue has been removed and we can see the, the structures. the renal pelvis, renal artery, renal vein, And following the sequence from the major calluses, the filtrate will go to the renal pelvis and then to the ureter. Now this hilum, which is the entrance, the entrance to uh, the kidney, it is located in a space, in that indentation of the uh, bean shape, which is called sinus, renal sinus. By definition, sinuses, it means cavity, space. So that's a space where the renal pelvis with the blood vessels, calluses, all of them are located. And it's surrounded by fat tissue, adipose tissue. You see that also when you make the sections. You will find adipose tissue in that part. Surrounded by, or surrounding the, all the major calluses and minor calluses. The ureters. The ureters' function is to bring the urine from the renal pelvis down to the urinary bladder. And the ureters are made of smooth muscle. The walls contain smooth muscle. Therefore, the contraction of the ureters follows the peristalsis pattern, which is a wave of contraction that comes from the renal pelvis all the way down the urinary bladder. The gravity helps, hydrostatic pressure of urine accumulating in the renal pelvis also helps, but the ureters contract smooth muscle and peristalsis. And then it connects to the urinary bladder, and if we open the urinary bladder, as we see in this diagram, we can see the openings of the ureters, which are located in the posterior wall of the urinary bladder. This smooth muscle of the ureter contracts as peristalsis, and sometimes we can see this on people that has uh, people that have uh, kidney stones. People that have kidney stones. This is kidney stones, One of the most painful things, especially when one of the stones comes down from the renal pelvis, enters the ureter, and it goes on the way to the urinary bladder what happens is the stone dilates the ureter initially, and as you know, anything that dilates the 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 smooth muscle will have as a reaction contraction. And once the contraction starts, it travels as peristaltic waves down the urinary bladder. But in this case, there are very painful contractions. And that's a symptom of kidney stones coming down. And they can feel it. People with this uh, type of pain, they, they actually trace the way of the ureter. Let's say the pain starts here in the back and it travels around my waist on the way to my uh, groin or my genitals. That's the pathway of the uterus. So that means the peristalsis are fighting. Peristaltic waves are fighting with the stone, trying to move it forward to the uterine bladder. And when the stone reaches the uterine bladder and it drops in the bladder, then the pain goes away until the next stone comes and enters, and perhaps it starts again. The urinary bladder is also made of muscle, smooth muscle. Smooth muscle with a type of epithelium inside that we have studied, transitional epithelium, which is called transitional because it changes its shape. The cells change their shape depending on the the state of the bladder if it's relaxed or if it's stretched by, uh, by the urine. The capacity of the bladder is about 700 to 800 milliliters. Although sometimes when people have retention because of obstruction of the ureter or the urethra, the urinary bladder can hold up to one liter of urine. Sometimes people come to the emergency with obstruction and with uh, um, the bump in the pelvic uh, in the pelvis on the abdomen, it looks like pregnancy sometimes, but it's a urinary bladder. This is urethral obstruction and uh, excessive accumulation of urine. Um, that bladder may hold up to one liter of urine. But this smooth muscle of the urinary bladder helps for urination, for voiding, or micturition which is the act of emptying the bladder. For emptying the bladder, again, is uh, a reflex, follow the principle of the smooth muscle. When it gets stretched, it will contract. And that's what happens. When the urinary bladder reaches a point where it's stretched, that's the signal for a loop that goes to the spinal cord and comes back as a reflex. It orders contraction of the smooth muscle of the urinary bladder. And. Then is when we feel, we feel the urge, we feel that the, the bladder is full because the muscle is contracting. But outside we have the sphincter, the external sphincter that will control this and will not open unless we voluntarily contract, uh, relax it. This is skeletal muscle, the external there are two sphincters. One of them is inner or internal, which is the neck of the bladder. That area of smooth muscle of the neck of the bladder. And the external sphincter, which is skeletal muscle, is voluntary, that's the one we control. Here we see a detail of the urinary bladder. We see the ureters. We get into, connecting to the urinary bladder, the connections, the openings are in the posterior wall of the bladder. There is an area called trigon. The trigon is determined by the two urethral openings and the internal urethral orifice. So That triangular area is called the trigon. The wall of the bladder contains rugged foldings of the mucosa. Since the bladder will stretch and relax, in a relaxed state, you will see those rugged. It is covered by peritoneum partially. And here we see a label of the internal urethral, the sphincter, and external urethral. The internal is smooth muscle, involuntary, and the external is skeletal muscle, voluntary muscle. The muscle of the urinary bladder, the one that's surrounding the whole organ and contracts for urination is called the detrusor muscle. When all that muscle contracts, the, the bladder will just push the urine against the exit. And the urethra is different in male and female. The length of the urethra is different. Urethra is five times longer approximately in males than in females. And that sometimes is a problem because <coughs> women have more incidence of urinary infection than men because the bacteria can invade easier the urinary bladder because the urethra is shorter than the male. That doesn't mean that infections, uh, urinary infections don't happen in males. They also happen, but with less frequency. And most of the infections are from bacteria that invade the urethra from the outside and reach the urinary bladder. In the male, the urethra has three parts. First part is called prostatic urethra because the prostate gland is located very close to the neck of the bladder. And we'll see more of this in the reproductive system. The second portion, of the urethra in the male is called intermediate. And it passes through the muscles that we have in the pelvic floor. And finally, the third portion of the urethra is called spongy urethra, because that's the part that runs in the penis, specifically in the corpus spongiosum. That's one of the parts of the penis. But for the rest, the inside of the urinary bladder, the openings, the trigone, the rugae, the same in male and female. The only difference is outside the urethra in different lengths. Now going back to the kidneys, how they work, they filter the blood. So the kidneys must receive blood and the renal artery is the one that feeds the kidney. And the renal vein gets all the blood that has been filtered already. This is different than the contents of oxygen because at the same time, the renal artery brings oxygenated blood. And when it leaves the kidney, it is deoxygenated blood. Oxygen is delivered. But at the same time, the blood, when it goes through the kidney, is filtered of all these waste and toxins and, and things that have to be excreted. Now, the renal artery and vein, they enter at the hilum, both. And renal artery is a branch of the abdominal aorta. The unit of the kidney is the nephron. As we say here, the nephron is a functional unit of the kidney. It's like a microfilter. That is where the filtration will occur. It's a microscopic structure. We cannot see it unless we use a microscope. And it contains blood vessels and a set of tubules that collect the filtrate from these blood vessels. (coughs) The blood vessels The blood vessels and that part of the uh, nephron that is surrounding the blood vessel is seen and called glomerulus. You can see the blood vessels are surrounded by this glomerulus and there are two arterioles, One that brings the blood that's called afferent arterial and the ones that take the blood away. That's the efferent arterial. Afferent and efferent arteriole. There's a set of tubules that have different names. The first tubule that connects to the filter is called proximal convoluted tubule. We sometimes use the letters PCT for this. Then we have a loop. A loop that gets deep in the medulla, see here this line that shows what is the cortex and what is the medulla. Well, this loop goes deep in the medulla and then returns to the cortex. That's called the loop of Henle. And when this loop returns to the cortex, the next segment of tubule is called distal convoluted tubule or DCT. All the DCTs from many nephrons, they will, collect, they will connect to a set of collecting ducts, and those collecting ducts will bring the filtrate, the urine, to a minor calyx. And we'll see another view of all these portions now let's use these terms to make it clear the definition and how we name all these parts. The this part of the nephron is called the renal corpuscle. Renal corpuscle. That's a term that was uh, uh, chosen when these structures were seen under the microscope. They saw like a corpuscle, like a little thin circular thing, and they called the renal corpuscle. Then, when they studied the components, what the renal corpuscle is made of, they saw that it contains a glomerulus, which is these loops of capillary blood vessels. So the glomerulus is made of blood vessels, capillary blood vessels, surrounded by a type of capsule, and they named that as glomerular capsule. So the renal corpus call is made of the glomerulus plus the glomerular capsule. And the glomerular capsule is, uh, is part of the nephron, it's part of the uh, tubule tissue or tubule uh, component, because it will continue with the proximal convoluted tubule as we see here in the picture, the PCT. And the arrows showing the direction of the filtrate, how it goes. Then we have the nephron loop or loop of Henle that we said enter into the medulla and it has two portions descending portion and ascending portion when it gets back to the cortex it is called the distal convoluted tubule and then collecting ducts now the importance of knowing all these segments is because each of these parts will have different functions We've been saying filtration, filtration. Filtration is one of the things that happens. Now, these different tubules will have other functions in the process of formation of urine. So the nephron receives blood from the afferent arteriole. And this afferent arteriole will divide in uh, many loops or tangle of capillary networks Called the glomerulus. And all of them will reunite into an efferent arteriole that takes the blood out of the glomerulus. The afferent arteriole brings all the nutrients and wastes. The efferent does not contain wastes, it's been filtered, the blood's been filtered. Now, this is a diagram to see how the blood circulates in the kidney. The sequence is shown here on this side, starting with the renal artery, which is the first one that gets into the kidney, in the hilum. But then the renal artery will divide into segmental arteries. The segmental will divide an interlobar. The interlobar into arcuate, the arcuate into cortical radiate, and then the afferent arterial, which will divide into the glomerulus, and from there, the efferent arterial, peritubular capillaries, and then all the venous system to the renal vein. We can also see the sequence in this part of the graph, in this diagram of the kidney. The renal artery is the first. The next branch is the segmental artery. Then we have the interlobar. And the name is because it goes in between the pyramids. It runs in the renal columns. And then the interlobar will divide into arcuate. From arch, because it comes and going this way, like an arch around the uh, pyramid. From there, cortica radiate, because it will radiate like this to all parts of the cortex. And from there, returns into, or uh, turns into afferent arterial that will get the blood to each of the glomerulus and, and the beginning part of the nephron. And from there to the peritubular capillaries and to the venous system. That, if you notice in the diagram, they mostly have the same names. It's just a vein, like cortical radiate veins, arcuate veins, interlobar veins, and renal vein. So, in this sequence, first renal artery, second segmental, third interlobar, fourth arcuate, five cortical radiate, and from here, afferent arteriole the one that feeds the nephron. That's the sequence of the blood vessels. So as we said, the nephron is made of different parts. The first part is called the renal corpuscle, which contains the glomerulus, which is a mass of capillaries, and the glomerular capsule, which is also named, uh, known as a Bowman's capsule, an old name. But this Bowman's capsule contains cells, cells, epithelial cells, which are called podocytes. And they will wrap around the capillaries. You see here the detail, you see those uh, cells with the nucleus, it's purple. They have many projections. They're actually surrounding every single loop of the capillaries of the glomerulus, and in that way will help for the filtration. So the filter is made of the wall of the blood vessel and these protocytes. They determine some gaps that will work as filters or spaces or pores that will filtrate all these molecules from the blood. And then it continues with the proximal convoluted tubule that is also composed by epithelial cells in the walls. Questions, comments to this point? Let's have a break. Okay, let's continue. So we're talking about the nephron and all the parts of the nephron. And Bowman's capsule, which is a part of the nephron that surrounds the glomerulus, contains two layers of cells that can be described like we did for the peritoneum and other membranes, visceral and parietal. The visceral layer is simple squamous epithelial cells. And those are the ones that we call podocytes because they have foot-like projections. That's why the name of podocyte. And they wrap around the capillary blood vessels, which are capillaries, so they only have endothelial cells, a very thin wall. And they are surrounding all these loops all these loops of the glomerular capillaries. Now the parietal layer of this Bowman's capsule contains simple squamous epithelial also, but is surrounding or lining the inner part of the capsule, as we see here again. Here we see that much better. The parietal layer of the Bowman's capsule, all these cells surrounding the inner part of the glomerulus of the Bowman's capsule. And the visceral layer, the visceral layer are all these podocytes that are surrounding the capillary blood vessels, which have these foot like projections, that's why we call them podocytes. So here we see the Afferent arterial bringing the blood. And the blood enters into these loops and is filtered through the gaps and pores determined by the endothelial cells of the blood vessel and the podocytes. And that's how the filtrate gets into that space determined by the capsule. And it continues its way, the filtrate, to the proximal convoluted tubule. Under the microscope, we'll see this view. We'll see sections, sections of the glomerulus and the Bowman's capsule. So this is what we try to see under the microscope today. All this inner group of cells are the all the loops of capillary blood vessels surrounded by photosized visceral layer. You see a space there surrounding the whole group of cells, and outer to that, we see a parietal layer, simple squamous epithelium, all the glomerular capsule. And then we see a lot of uh, tubules like this. We see another view in the lab. So what is a filter made of? The filter, the filter contains, uh, first, the porocytes, the potocytes. this picture here, electron microscope, a porocyte, then we have a basal lamina, and then on the other side, all these are endothelial cells. So that wall, that membrane, the filter, is made of three things. podocytes, basal lamina, and endothelial cells of the glomerulus, of the glomerular capillaries. And you can see the presence of pores called fenestrations or pores. And all these podocytes they determine gaps in between all these projections called the filtration slits. Filtration slits. So all these little gaps and pores, they will determine that different molecules will go through. Will go through and be filtered. We'll see that not every, every molecule from the blood is filtered, like albumin or proteins that we have in the blood, like plasma proteins, are so large molecules they, that they don't go through that filter, unless There is damage of podocytes, basal lamina, or capillaries, which happens in kidney diseases. That's the usefulness of analysis, like the one that we're gonna do today with the little reagent strip that determines the presence of proteins in the urine, for instance. Proteins are not supposed to be present in the urine because they are too large molecules. They cannot go through these pores unless these pores are enlarged because of a disease. And then we find some proteins in the urine, which is abnormal. And the other diagrams are showing us also these components, the fenestration or pores of the glomerular endothelial cells, the basal lamina, and the slit membranes between the podocytes. So the fluid that is filtered will get into the space, the Bowman space, inside the capsule. And from there, it continues its way to the proximal convoluted tubule. Proximal convoluted tubule, loop of Henle, and this convoluted tubule, that's the sequence where the filter will go through. I mean, with the filtrate, the fluid, will get through these sections. Then, all the DCTs, or distal convoluted tubules, will drain to the collecting duct, and all the collecting ducts will get together and form a papillary duct, which will drain into the papilla. Where is the papilla, this part, that will drain into A minor calyx, a minor calyx, and then the minor calyx, the major calyces, and following the renal (coughs) pelvis. The loop of Henle, What, what is the loop of Henle? It's part of this system, but there is one moment at which this loop or this tubule gets very deep in the medulla and then returns. Uh, determined in two sections, descending and ascending loop, ascending limb of the loop of hell. Why this happens? We'll see in the next part of physiology that the urine sometimes has to be concentrated and some other times it has to be diluted. Like the first morning of the urine, or uh, the first urine of the morning, it is usually darker because it's well concentrated. That capacity or that function is made by or performed by the loop of Henle. It has the ability to concentrate the urine or the ability to dilute the urine. Like if we drink like two liters of water in the morning and then the next thing that happens, you go to the restroom every 10 minutes and the urine comes out like water, clear. It doesn't have color because it's diluted. You're eliminating a lot of water. You had an excess of water. So that capacity is also uh, belongs to the loop of Henle. It has a capacity to concentrate or dilute the urine. There are two types of nephrons. Some of them are in the cortex. And well, all of them are in the cortex. But some of them are very close, very next to the medulla. And they are called the juxtamedullary nephrons. And the loop of Henle, as we said, enable the kidneys to create a concentration gradient. And that's how the urine can be concentrated or diluted. If the loop of Henle is longer, that means that those nephrons work more in concentrating or diluting the urine. The cortical nephrons are about 80 or 85% of the million nephrons that each kidney has. And the other 15, 20% are juxtamedullary nephrons. The juxtamedullary nephrons are the ones that have long loops of Henle that get deep in the medulla and help for this function of concentrating or diluting the urine. Now, not, not all the nephrons are working 100%. I mean, if you have a million nephrons in each kidney, like 2 million, and under baseline conditions, you're probably using like 75% or 70% of them working effectively, like having a reserve of nephrons. You yeah, have a question? Is there something that determines the length of the 10, like, or just, do some people have- no, it, that is that is determined by the necessity of concentrating or diluting the urine. It is genetically determined. Uh, because when these nephrons are damaged, the juxtamedullary, the thing that we see is problems with concentration or dilution of the urine. But how much or how many of these nephrons are in every person is usually the average 15-20%. That's what is required to perform this concentration of diluted of the urine. If some damage happens, then we may see that effect. But it does, it's not related to other characteristics of the person or the size of the kidney or anything. These are just two pictures of these two types of nephrons. Now, another thing that we see next to the glomerulus is a group of cells that we call juxtaglomerular apparatus. And there is a special part where the ascending loop of Henley gets very close or in, almost in contact with the afferent arterial. And this is called the macula densa. Macula densa is a group of cells that are columnar cells, and they're very crowded. They're all very very, very crowded, one to each other, in there's special concentration of these cells. That, that's what we call the macula dance. The wall of the arterial, the afferent arterial, contains smooth muscle cells that are specialized, and they are called juxtaglomerular cells. What is this apparatus about? It regulates the blood pressure. Autonomic nervous system. We know that it regulates the blood pressure by constricting blood vessels, relaxing blood vessels. Well, the juxtaglomerular apparatus will produce some substances and produce some responses that will regulate or help to regulate the blood pressure. Here's what we see, this juxtaglomerular apparatus. It's not a separate organ, it's just an area. That is, uh, that includes uh, the macula densa cells, which are these columnar cells that belong to the ascending limb of of nephron loop, plus the juxtaglomerular cells that belong to the wall of the afferent arterial. So these groups of cells will play an important role in regulating the blood pressure. How? By detecting the changes in the blood pressure or detecting the concentration of sodium potassium that enters into the filtrate. Now let's get into the physiology to explain some of these things with more detail. At the beginning we we're saying filtration, filtration the function of the kidney is filtration, but that's just one of the functions of the kidney, filtration. We will see there are three basic functions or processes that the nephrons perform. First one is filtration that happens on the glomerulus, glomerular filtration. How this happens? By pressure. The the blood pressure that the the blood (coughs) circulates inside the arterioles the afferent arteriole and the glomerulus, with certain pressure, hydrostatic pressure, which is the blood pressure. And that pressure will push the filtrate to go through the filter and to the Bowman's capsule. The second process is called tubular reabsorption because through those filters, many molecules will go through, even molecules that we actually need like glucose. We need glucose, but it is filtrated. The first process of glomerular filtration, we see glucose going through these filters of the nephron. But we're not going to lose that glucose. We have to reabsorb it. We need to recover that glucose, and that happens in the second step, too, the reabsorption. We get important substances from the filtrate back to the body. Glucose and other products that we need because the filter is just about size of the pores and whatever molecule that fits, it will be filtrated. Then later, if it's important, we have to recover it and we reabsorb it. And the third is tubular secretion, which is the movement of waste from the body to the filtrate. It's like I'm making sure that all the things that we need to excrete are excreted. First, the filters, that will be filtered but then Later in the distal convoluted tubule, special, in the DCT, waste materials will be also secreted. And that's what we call tubular secretion. So the formation of urine relies on these three processes, glomerular filtration, tubular reabsorption, and tubular secretion. And we see them here in this sequence of the nephron where it happens, filtration, from the blood plasma into the nephron, that's step number one. Step number two, tubular reabsorption, which happens in both tubules, but more in the proximal tubule. And the third, tubular secretion, that happens mostly in the distal convoluted tubule. And then after these three processes, when the urine enters into the collecting duct, now it will be called urine. Because before that, still substances have been exchanged and secreted, reabsorbed, and it's not final urine. But when it gets into the collecting duct now, we can call it urine. So first, filtration. The filtration is the process by which the plasma goes through these small pores and filtration slits. And the composition of the filtrate, also called ultrafiltrate, is basically like the plasma, but without proteins. It's a protein-free filtrate. Blood cells are not filtered. They're too large. Just the plasma but no proteins. And then the plasma continues its way after getting through the glomerulus, through the ether and arterial, and the proteins are with no change and they continue its way in the circulation. And these numbers are telling something. These numbers are showing us how these processes work. Like, for instance, if in the plasma, I'm talking about glomerular filtration. In the plasma, the amount of water is approximately three liters. In a day, in a day, 24 hours, 180 liters of water will filtrate. 180 liters of water. Filtration only in the glomerulus. But how much water we eliminate in the urine? One liter, two liters. Most. What happens with the difference with the rest? It's being reabsorbed. How about proteins? In the proteins, in the plasma, 200 grams, and the filtrate, in 24 hours we can eliminate 2 grams of proteins, but small proteins, short molecules. According to the size of the pores, they can be filtered. But then how much proteins we find in the urine? Minimal amounts, traces of urine, traces of proteins in the urine, because most of it has been reabsorbed. So that's the pattern. Many things filtrate, but most of them are reabsorbed. The glucose. In the plasma, three grams. How much of glucose is filtrated in 24 hours? 162 grams. How much is reabsorbed? Everything. All of it is reabsorbed. Not a single molecule is lost. And in the urine, we shouldn't find glucose. If we find glucose in the urine, something is wrong. Diabetes, perhaps. Same for urea and creatinine, which are two molecules that have to be excreted because these are wastes, these are waste. Look at the creatinine, 1.6 grams is filtered, and 1.6 grams are present in the urine. All of it is excreted because it's a waste, it's a waste product. Urea, 54 grams are filtered, but then 30 grams are present in the urine, about half of it. The urea has other functions. It is actually reabsorbed, but then again, it is eliminated. Creatinine is the one that is eliminated completely. None of it is reabsorbed. All that is filtered, it is eliminated in the urine. So these numbers help to understand this process, filtration and reabsorption and then secretion. If for some reason the kidney has a problem, we'll see all this numbers change, like we may see proteins in the urine. We may find glucose in the urine, which is abnormal. And they are signs of different diseases. So the filtration follows balance of pressures, pressures that are called starting forces. And that's very similar to what we studied in our cardiovascular our circulatory system, when we said all well, the fluid comes out of the capillary blood vessels on the arterial side and then returns to the venous side. And that's how the nutrients are delivered to the cells. Well, in this case, the forces are very similar. Blood hydrostatic pressure is the main force. It's the main force that pushes the water through the filtration membrane. That's blood pressure. And it's about 55 millimeters of mercury. There is hydrostatic pressure also in the, in the glomerular capsule, in the space. But it's lower, it's about 15. So if we make a difference, it will be plus 40. And the fluid will filtrate in that direction. And the two other forces are colloid osmotic pressure, the pressure of the proteins. Blood osmotic pressure, which is about 30 milligrams or millimeters of mercury, is the pressure of the plasma proteins that pull water back to the blood. In other words, opposes filtration. That's another reason why the proteins are not supposed to be filtered, because if they are filtered, this pressure will not be enough, and we'll have a lot of filtration. So we can express the net filtration like this. Blood hydrostatic pressure minus blood osmotic pressure minus the capsular hydrostatic pressure. Replacing the values here, 55, hydrostatic pressure of the blood, 30, blood osmotic pressure, and 15, hydrostatic pressure of the capsule, then we have positive 10, which means there will be filtration. This is how important the blood pressure is. If someone is in shock, like having a dehydration, hemorrhage, or bleeding, the blood pressure will get low. And if the blood pressure gets too low, there won't be filtration. And if there is no filtration, the kidney will get damaged. That's why we get so stressed out when someone is in shock, and we put an IV quickly and start dripping fluids because we don't want the kidney to suffer from lack of blood supply. In other words, the blood pressure must be maintained at least at 55 millimeters of mercury in the kidney. And that's, that's just the mean arterial pressure. In cardiovascular system, we study the mean arterial pressure. That's what is the pressure effective here, which is 55. And these pressures are expressed here in this graph. The number one, the blood hydrostatic pressure that promotes filtration, blood osmotic pressure that opposes filtration, and the pressure in the capsule that opposes filtration also. And this is just a calculation that we just did in the previous slide. All right, questions? See you later in the lab.